Good evening and welcome again. I do want to mention the fact that we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to honor our mothers today. And we hope and pray that each and every mother here has been honored. And it is a great blessing to have a godly mother. We appreciate so much the great example that you have set in the home and in the community. And it is our prayer that God would bless you with many, many more years of service in his kingdom. We appreciate so much those who are visiting tonight. We have a number of our own folks away tonight. I know that many people are probably coming and going with it being Mother's Day, but we're glad you're here. And if you're looking for a church home, we believe you found the right place. We're very grateful for those that have placed membership here. It might be the case that you're looking for a church home. As always, we invite you to consider the work here. We'd love to have you come to be a part of the work, to be a part of this family. It'd be a great blessing to us. Tonight in our study, we're going to look at Micah chapter 4, the passage that Dusty read a moment ago. Micah was a country preacher, and he prophesied during the days of Isaiah and Hosea. And Micah, like Isaiah, foretold of a day when God would establish the church, the Lord's house. I want us to think for a minute or two in our study tonight about the Lord's house. Prophetically, Micah is writing some 700 years before the Lord's house would be established. And Micah sees the church the kingdom of God, the Lord's house, as an exalted institution. And so we're going to talk about the Lord's house from the vantage point of Micah, the prophet. I want to begin tonight by calling attention to the establishment of the Lord's house. And Micah, in his prophecy, deals with some facts pertaining to the establishment of the Lord's house. First of all, he addresses when the Lord's house will be established. Listen again to what he said in verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. Some translations say in the last days. Now there are a lot of people today that think we are looking toward the last days. Biblically speaking, we are in the last days. The last days simply consist of the Christian dispensation. There have been three specific dispensations of time revealed in scripture, beginning with the patriarchal period, followed by the Mosaic dispensation, and then the Christian dispensation. And the Bible tells us that we today live in the latter days, the last days. And you could read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, for example. So, Micah says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, in the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. A second thing that I think is addressed has to do with who would establish the Lord's house. And we know that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Note if you would, Micah said, 
that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. The institution that we're talking about belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that came to set up the kingdom of God. Daniel, that great prophet in the long ago, promised that there would come a day when the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel, of course, had the opportunity to interpret a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had, and Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire gave way to the Medes and the Persians, and they gave way to the Grecian Empire, which ultimately yielded to the Roman Empire. And Daniel said in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Well, that's the kingdom we're talking about. Jesus began his earthly ministry like John the Baptist, and John was the forerunner to Christ. John pointed people in the direction of the Son of God. He sought to acclimate the hearts and minds of people to receive the Christ, the anointed one. Jesus, as he preached, said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, of course, is talking about the kingdom that Daniel foretold of. It is the Lord's house that Micah spoke of and Isaiah as well in Isaiah chapter 2. So Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 9 at verse 1, Jesus said, verily I say unto you, there are some of them standing here that shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. Here Jesus promised that there were some who were alive in that day they would see the establishment of this divine institution, the Lord's house. Well, who established it? I said a moment ago, Micah focuses on the Lord's house. The Hebrew writer tells us that Jesus is not only our great high priest, according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, but he is a minister of the true tabernacle, which he pitched, and not man. Now in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked very specifically, who do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus then specifically asked, but whom do you say that I am? And here's what Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now. Jesus responded by saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I also say unto you that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Death and the Hadean realm would not prevent the Lord from establishing his house, his church, his divine institution. So Jesus promised to set up or to establish the church. Somebody might ask the question, with what did Jesus purchase or buy the church with? His blood. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. There are many types and shadows in the Old Testament that prefigure that which has been revealed in the New Testament. Some of the types and shadows 
have to do with the coming of Christ, the redemptive plan of Almighty God. One very specific shadow or type was the church prefigured in the union between Adam and Eve as revealed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul in Ephesians 5 at about verse 30 quotes Moses back in Genesis chapter 2. He said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And then he said, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So God had in mind the church before the world was ever founded, before the world ever began. And we'll look at a passage pertaining to that in just a moment or two. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the founder of the church, the Lord's house. Not only is he the founder, he is the foundation. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at verse 11, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the founder, the foundation, and he's also the chief cornerstone according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. The significance of the chief cornerstone being everything rests on the Lord. Why is that? Because he established it. He bought it. He built it. He set it up. And then there is a third thing I want you to see as we talk about the establishment of the Lord's house. It has to do with where the Lord's house would be established. I want you to drop down with me and look at verse 2 for a moment. Here's what Micah said. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Where did the church begin? The New Testament church. The church that Jesus bought with his blood, the church that he built, began in the city of Jerusalem. That's exactly what Isaiah said. Micah authenticates the same claim that the church had its beginning in the city of Jerusalem, the city of the king. Now in Luke chapter 24, Jesus rehearsed with the apostles the fact that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning him. He cited the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he said they had been fulfilled as they related to his death, burial, and resurrection. But then in about verse 49 he said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to all nations beginning where? At Jerusalem. Well here is Micah the prophet and he's saying that the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before Jesus ascended back to heaven, here's what he said to the apostles. You shall, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he said, you will be witnesses to me or of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Acts chapter 2 tells us, that the apostles received the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day. In receiving that baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The tongues that they spoke in were intelligible languages. 
they spoke the wonderful words of Almighty God. Peter is recorded by Luke, and Luke gives us a narration of the first gospel sermon proclaimed in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day. Everything up to Acts chapter 2 is pointing to the coming of the Lord's house. Once you get to, second, to the second chapter of the book of Acts, though, you have the establishment, the beginning point, the birth of the New Testament church. Well, when was that? About A.D. 32, 33? So the church began in the city of Jerusalem. The church was built by Jesus in accordance with the prophets of old according to God's divine plan. So, today we live in the last days, the latter days, the Christian dispensation. And by the way, Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant under which we now live. It is the last will and testament of the Son of God. There are no future revelations coming. Now, having said that, Think with me for just a moment or two about the exaltation of the Lord's house. Listen again to what Micah said, beginning in verse 1. It shall come to pass in the last days or the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. And he said, it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Let me just pause there for a minute. There are three divine institutions that are spoken of in Scripture. The first, of course, would be the home. The second would be what we call the civil government. The third is the church. The church is viewed by Micah and Isaiah as an exalted institution. Why do you think Micah... And Isaiah foresaw the church as an exalted institution. I think there are a lot of reasons. First and foremost, because it is the Lord's institution. But think with me, if you would, for just a minute. When we think about the exaltation of the Lord's house, is it not the case that it reflects the divine plan of Almighty God? The church was no accident, no afterthought. God in heaven purposed and planned for the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, Paul said that the church exists today according to the eternal plan of God in heaven. Now, there are a lot of people today that have the idea that when Jesus came to earth, because he was rejected by the Jewish people, he set up as an afterthought, the church age. Well, the church and the kingdom are one and the same. Many times in scripture, they are used interchangeably. Jesus, as well as, well, go back and look at Isaiah and other prophets. Isaiah, for one, said some seven centuries before Jesus ever came to earth that his own people would reject him that they would turn their backs on him. John said he came to his own, his own received him not. It was no surprise to the Lord that the Jews rejected him, contrary to the thinking of many. So the Lord 
came to earth and this redemptive plan of God fulfilled in full by Jesus involved the church. A lot of planning, a lot of prophecies went into the composition and makeup of this institution that we call the church. Now, God in heaven, his wisdom, his keen understanding, recognized that mankind, being endowed with the freedom of choice, would ultimately make wrong choices, thereby sinning. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that Adam and Eve, God's creation, transgressed in the law, or rather transgressed the law of God in the garden. As a result of that, sin made its entrance into the world and death by sin. Well, Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the promised seed is given. The promised seed was spoken of by Moses and by God, referring to the coming of the Messiah, the Son. Here's what you need to understand. The church was and is just as essential to God's redemptive plan as the coming of Jesus. You can't separate the two. They are interwoven together. Now somebody might ask the question, well, why would that be? Well, because Jesus is the Savior. That's right. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He saves people where? In his body, the church. Well, how do I know that the body is the church? Well, Paul said in Ephesians 1 verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Are you saying then that Jesus is the Savior of the body? That's exactly right. Ephesians 5.23, the Bible says that Christ is the Savior of the body. So God in heaven foreordained, predetermined this plan whereby men and women would be saved in Christ and in His church, this divine institution, the Lord's house. That's why it's such an exalted institution. There's a second thing I want you to see. Note if you would in the latter part of verse 1, Micah said, and peoples shall flow to it. In verse 2, he said, many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The church is exalted because of the different kinds of people that make it up. What do I mean by that? The Jews were God's exclusive people, weren't they? In order for God to bring about his redemptive plan, he needed, he needed a people, he needed a nation through whom the Christ would come. And so he chose Israel. The formation of the nation of Israel is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The call of Abraham. Abraham is identified as the father of the Hebrew nation. Now, it would be through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then ultimately through Judah, the tribe of Judah, that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, would emerge. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Bible there speaks about the Messiah, this redemptive plan, running through the seed line of David. Jesus today sits upon the throne of David. It is a spiritual throne, not a physical throne. But nonetheless, God needed a people through whom the Christ would come. So he chose the nation of Israel. Well, somebody says, why did he choose Israel? Because he's God. He has that right. He simply needed a nation, a group of people, through whom he could bless the world with a redeemer. So he chose Israel. So, the Jewish people, they were, they were the channel through whom God sent his son, established his church, provided for mankind the hope of redemption. But God's design was not to merely save the Jews only. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the Jews were to, to have been a witness to other nations. Many, in many respects, they failed miserably in that, in that command. But they were to have been a witness, a light for God to pagan people. So you get to Acts chapter 2, and you have Pentecost Day, the gospel being preached for the first time. People that had been present when Jesus was crucified, Individuals that knew firsthand about the Messiah, they knew about his miracles and the wonders and the signs that he had done in their midst. And Peter said, you have crucified and slain the very Son of God. Now Peter went on to say, that all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart. They were pricked. So they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Here's what Peter said. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 39 he said, for the promise is to you, that is, to the Jews, and to your children, that is, their descendants, and to as many as are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. That's the Gentiles. Remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. The gospel is preached to the Jews. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel is preached to the Samaritans. There is a scattering, a dispersing of the saints in Jerusalem. Those that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And then in Acts chapters 10 and 11, we have Cornelius and the conversion of his household. Gentile people. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, at verse 16, the Bible says that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. That is, he brought both Jew and Gentile together in this divine body, this exalted institution. Furthermore, in chapter 3, he talked about that mystery that had been concealed for ages, but now had been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Well, what was that mystery that had been concealed, but now revealed? That the Gentiles might be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So, 
The gospel is for all. When Jesus said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost, he meant he came to seek and to save every person, Jew and Gentile. God is interested in the souls of people. Now think about some of the exclusive clubs, societies, fraternities that exist in our world today. There are certain societies or fraternities, clubs, that do not have an open membership. You can't just walk up and knock on the door and say, you know what, I want to be a member here. It doesn't work that way. If you don't believe me, go to, a, go to Augusta National. Go to the gate and tell them, hey, I want to be a member there. They'll laugh at you. It is an exclusive club. Now, I may not like that, but that's just the facts. The church, however, when we talk about the church, there are no exclusions. The gospel is for all. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel's for Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, it's for everybody. Here's what Jesus said in Mark 16, 15. Go therefore and make disciples, or rather that's Matthew chapter 28. In Mark 16, he said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. In Matthew 28, 19, he said, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, the beauty of the church, everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of education, regardless of social status, regardless of race, it doesn't matter. When we comply with the terms of admission into this kingdom, God puts us in this body. This body is an exalted institution. Why is that? Because it is comprised of different people who are saved. Saved by the blood of Christ. Saved in the church that Jesus died and purchased with his blood. The Bible says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for it, Ephesians 5.25. The beauty of the church is reflected in the fact that Jesus willingly, sacrificially died so that it might be established. There's a third thing I want you to see. It has to do with the education that takes place regarding the church. Listen again to what Micah had to say, beginning in verse 2. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Have you ever thought about how Christianity is a religion that necessitates teaching. It's all about teaching. What was it Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 17? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. What was it Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Did Jesus not say in John chapter 6, verse 44, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God? Every man therefore that hath heard and learned of the Father cometh unto me. So why do we preach the gospel? So people can come to understand the blessings that are open to all so that people can understand, you know what, I can be a member of the church. I can be a part of this divine, this exalted institution. Just because of my race or sex or whatever, I can be a member of this, of this blood-bought body. So what about the information as it pertains to the church? Go back to Pentecost Day. What was it that Peter did to lead those people to a safe relationship with the Lord? He preached the gospel, didn't he? Was it not Paul that said that God designed preaching so that people might believe? It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Paul would say we preach not ourselves but Christ Jesus our Lord and ourselves as your servants for his sake. Paul was a preaching machine. Peter was a preaching machine. And they preached the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. In preaching Christ and the church, what did they accentuate? They told people first and foremost, listen, this is how you enjoy pardon from sin. There are, there are many, many people in our world today that don't know what God has said about his plan of redemption. There are a lot of people in our world today that misunderstand how to enjoy the benefits and the blessings of the blood of Christ. I want you to understand, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. Here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. It's in him, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, John said unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. So we're saved by the blood of Christ. But here's the question. How do we appropriate the blood that was shed on Calvary? Well, let me ask this question. Where did Jesus shed his blood? In death. John 19, 34. If I want to appropriate the benefits of the blood of Jesus, I have to go where it was shed, don't I? Now, please, don't misunderstand me here. There are a lot of people in our world that misunderstand the purpose of New Testament baptism. They completely misunderstand what the Bible teaches about New Testament baptism. In no shape, form, or fashion am I teaching, or would I ever teach, that baptism is the only command in order to be saved. Baptism is simply one step in God's plan of salvation, preceded by faith in Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized, shall be saved. Is faith important? Well, of course it is. 
when Peter preached to those people on Pentecost Day, he said, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by many miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Did they know about Jesus of Nazareth? Absolutely. They knew firsthand about Jesus. So belief is essential. The Hebrew writer said, without faith, it's impossible to be well pleasing to him. We have to have faith in God. Well, what about repentance? Could I just believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and not have to change my ways in order to enjoy a relationship with him? What if I believed in Jesus, was baptized into Christ, but I failed to repent? Would that save me? Of course not. Why? Because when I repent, what I'm saying is I'm getting out of the sinning business, turning over a new life. I'm giving my life to the Lord. So here's what, here's what Jesus said. Except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3. Peter said on Pentecost Day, repent to those people that had been responsible for putting Jesus to death. And then I have the opportunity to confess my faith before other people. That I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Just like the eunuch in Acts chapter 8 verse 37. Well, is there anything else left for me to do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Why? For the remission of your sins. Now I want to just ask you this question. When I tell people what Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Am I telling them the truth or am I telling people error? It's the truth. That's exactly what Jesus said. When I tell people what Peter said on Pentecost Day, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Is that truth or error? Don't you think I'm on safe ground? Don't you think we're on safe ground? When we simply uphold what Jesus said, what Peter said, what about Paul? You remember what Paul said? Ananias instructed him to do, arise, be baptized, wash away your sins. So here you have Jesus placing belief and baptism before salvation, Peter placing repentance and, and baptism before the remission of sins, Paul placing the washing away of sins before baptism. So I'd ask you, does that sound biblical? If we do what they did, then we become what they were. Well, what were they? New Testament Christians. What church did they, did they belong to? The church that you read about in the New Testament? Listen to what Luke said in Acts chapter 2, verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, who's in the church? Those that believed in Jesus, repented of their sins, confessed his name, and were baptized into Christ. You remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about Colossians chapter 2? And we talked about circumcision that circumcision made without hands? Well, what occurs when that circumcision takes place is the putting off of the sins of the body. 
when are those sins cut away? Talk about the physical rite of circumcision. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 17 and other places. Simply meant the cutting away of skin. Paul is talking about the cutting away of the cutting away of our sins. It doesn't occur when we believe in Jesus. It doesn't occur when we repent of our sins. It doesn't occur when we confess the name of Jesus. But it does occur when we believe in Jesus, repent of our sins, confess his name, and then are buried with him in baptism. That is the exact point when our sins are cut away. And we enjoy salvation, Mark 16, 16, the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38, the washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. Remember what was said about the Bereans? They searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. All I'm asking you to do, read and study the Bible. So we talk about this information about the Lord's house. When we preach the gospel, we tell people, you can be pardoned from sin. You can enjoy peace because the kingdom of God is a peaceable kingdom. Listen to what Micah said in verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. He's not talking about some future millennial reign here upon this earth. The picture is that of the New Testament church and within the concept or framework of that church, a peaceable kingdom. After all, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And as the Prince of Peace, Jesus has the ability to impart peace to us, does he not? Paul said, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. We have the peace that passes all understanding, Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. And we enjoy peace with one another. Why? Because we are in a peaceable kingdom. When we preach the gospel, one of the compelling points to me is not just the forgiveness of sins, the peace that we enjoy in Christ, but knowing that God's presence is with us wherever we go. When we leave here and go to work tomorrow, guess what? The Lord's with us. When we take a vacation this summer, guess what? The Lord's with us. When we face the highs and the lows, the joys and the frustrations of life, guess what? The Lord's with us. How do I know that? Because the Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my help. Then there's the promise of life eternal. Paul said that we live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Christianity culminates, or really, I guess we talk about the, the zenith of Christianity. What is it? A home in heaven, is it? When people step out into eternity who have died in the Lord, is it not the case that they have gone home to be with the Lord? And that in going home to be with the Lord, that's exactly what they had lived and worked and served for? That was what their life was all about. Listen, one day the world and all the things in this world and all the things that we have in this world, one day those things will be meaningless. We'll be long gone. 
The only thing that will really matter, our relationship to the Lord. The beauty of Christianity is we have hope beyond the grave. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And Jesus said, if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Where I am, there you may be also. In closing, let me ask this question. A hundred years from now, when everything is said and done and the dust clears, where will you be? If Jesus were to come today, where would you be? If he were to come 25 years from now, where would you be? Now, I understand death may come first. I think it's safe to conclude 100 years from now, we'll all be in eternity, whether the Lord comes or not. Now, there are some young folks here, maybe young enough that they'll be over the age of 100. I hope, hope and pray you live to be 100. But the truth of the matter is, 100 years from now, the car you drove, the clothes you wear, the home you live in, your furniture, all those things won't mean anything. The only thing that will really matter were you among the saved. Were you living for the Lord? Will Jesus say to you on that great and final day, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be in heaven one day. I want all of us to be in heaven one day. And the beauty of it is we can all be there together. But we have to live in conformity to his will. You see, Micah said he will teach us his law. It's God's way. We transform our lives by obeying the gospel. And then we live in conformity to his will. Why is that? Because he is our Lord. He is our ruler. So if you're here tonight and maybe you're not a member of the Lord's house, could I encourage you to come to Christ? I want you to come to Christ believing that he is the son of God. Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away. Then live faithfully. If you're here tonight, maybe your life is an absolute train wreck. Could I encourage you, let us pray with you and for you. Maybe you're a child of God, you're not living as you should you want to get your life right, look, you're in the right place. And you are with the right people. It would be our honor and privilege to pray with you and for you. And we know for certain that Almighty God will forgive every sin. So, why not come tonight as we stand and sing?